Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Maita. What's going on, everyone? Austin, what are you up to, man? Give me the rundown. Dude, you gotta... Let's start with you this time. Give me, yeah, give me, a, give me? me a moment to breathe in one of, these, one of these preambles, okay? I need time to think. We are trying to fund a jumbo deal that is absolutely messed up, which honestly, I can't really talk about yet, but... Sure. It's been super exciting. It's a big land construction kind of project that we're trying to do. And we'll see. I'm, um, yeah, that, that's basically taken up my, uh, my peace and tranquility for the last week. But aside from that, we decided to delist our uh, cottage. Um, that should be coming off the market on Friday. It was listed at six ninety nine. I mean, part of the problem was we had bookings on Airbnb every weekend. So like the guests, like people that wanted to do a showing were only able to do it at very limited hours, right? But now it's available. But now when you look at the cottage market, there's like a significant influx of listings. And our realtor was like, hey, we should do like a 50K price cut, which we were still okay to sell it at like 650, 640, 630, like stuff like that we were okay with. But my concern was if we did the 50K price cut and it still didn't sell, then we wouldn't be able to do our second refinance, which we wanted yeah. to do because we initially only refinanced at like a value of like five something while it was um, like 80% finished renovations, right? So we instead just decided we're just going to delist it. So it should be coming off the market tomorrow. So that's interesting. Man, I'm getting like some interesting multifamily leads, but all require heavy cash, like heavy down payments. But on the kind of price per unit perspective, it's great. On the amount of lift that's possible, that's substantial, right? Or it'd be like the price is high, but they're offering like an 80% BTB, 85% BTB, mm-hmm. right? Things that can make it attractive. So it's it's interesting, but it's also like the, the reality of the environment where I think cash is king, right? And I think as a result, you have to be very careful on the cash that you do have, right? So I don't know. Yeah. Um, that, that's me and my rants, but what are you been up to? Interesting. Um, just, uh, I think it's an important point that you made there that you skimmed over is, is that you're looking at your exit options with your cottage and refining is one of them. And you realize that having a price cut will 100% impact your appraisal because they will see that there and they would recognize that the appraisal value would likely have to be decently lower than whatever your last listing price was going to be, right? Yeah, the the argument is, hey, we listed at 699, so it's probably not worth like anything above 680, right? Because if we took like a six, if someone came in with a 690, 680, we probably would have took it, but they're probably not thinking it's not worth anything above like 620, 630, right? Because that's significantly lower than what we listed at. Yeah. I think the other side of it is I don't think it's price in today's world. And you and I have talked about this. Like it seems more like people just do not want to buy. The very few people that have the cash um and actually want to buy are seeking aggressive like offers. Like yeah. Like I guess we'll talk about your stuff after, but like a uh, condo would get like a five hundred K offer when it's listed for like six fifty and stuff like that, right? That kind of mm-hmm. seems like the landscape today, which I understand as well. Like we in the middle of COVID, we were making stupid aggressive offers, right? Because we could. And if someone wasn't willing to entertain, we were like, that's cool. Like, we'll just kind of move on, right? Yeah. But I was talking to someone else yesterday who was also telling me like certain markets, they're, they're like still moving with multiples. Like you look at Windsor, it's still moving. I don't understand why, but that's at least what I've heard. I, I have a little bit more insight to that. Yeah. People, what do you got? <laughs> it, it is true. There are some, even in Toronto, 
there are some properties that will move with multiples. That doesn't reflect the market. In my opinion, the people who say that are the same people. Ask them if they're bullish in real estate. They'll say yes, right? Nothing wrong without being bullish or bearish, but you always take what happened in the narrative and then you cannot generalize it. I've spoken to realtors in Windsor. One Clark, we're chatting yeah. offline and he was saying that things had slowed down quite drastically. He's also mentioned that oddly, there'd be some properties here and there that will receive multiples. But that being said, it still sells below. I'm not going to say below markets because market is subjective, but it sells lower than expectations. And I had a conversation with Tristan, who we had on our podcast as well in Sudbury. Market is very slow there, but he put on a story. There's a multiple with 13 offers. And I asked him the story behind that. He said it, I think it went 50K, less than 50K over asking, less, over 13 offers. You're telling me 13 people put in an offer below 50K over ask on their already underpriced property. And it ultimately sold around, I think he was saying 50 to 60K lower than his expectation of what it would have sold for, right? So, and same story in Toronto. I was at the Volition event yesterday presenting about joint ventureships. But at the beginning of the presentation, my buddy Ming was giving some updates on the market. Same thing, market slow. There was a property where there was 13, 14 offers competing against it, but it still sold lower than expected. So you could have multiples, but people are not, keep in mind, a good chunk of those multiples are probably in and around asking, and there's not gonna be many people who are willing to go significantly above asking. So I would say take it with a grain of salt because even even with some of these individuals who posted it on the story, when I called them and asked them what is actually happening behind the scenes of that property, like, yeah, there are multiples, but we expected 50, 60K more, right? So it's not the true, it's not the entire story. I, I just right. want to make that clear, right? Because people will see stuff on socials and run with it, but there's always another side to what's really going on. So we carrying off on the Toronto property, we have a few offers. Um, we're negotiating. So the negotiation has been has been going on for a while. There's a couple that we turned down, a couple low balls. I was speaking with my accountant and we feel like now is the right time to sell. So we sold off a couple of properties this year. And so there's going to be a capital gains tax. But also at the same time, I have business income on my corporation as well. And I funded both the flip half personal and half on my corporation. So it's a joint venture between the both. And we're going to write it off between the both to tax loss harvest, right? Because either way, I'm going to have to spend money on taxes nonetheless. So this is an easier way to bring that burden down, right? Uh, versus putting in another 200,000 and then carrying it to be like a cash flow positive property. Yeah. For me, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense because either way, like I'm going to have to pay the taxes on the personal side. I'm going to have to pay business taxes on my corp. So let's like roll these losses this year. If there's any year to do it, I'll do it this year. Unfortunately, on the personal side, it doesn't carry over. But on the corporation side, those losses could carry over to other profits that I eventually make in the next year, right? And so that's sort of our game plan here. So it's going to be when you take net net at the tax impact, the loss actually isn't as drastic as yeah. what I was originally anticipating. So it's much more bearable, right? Because I was anticipating a big tax bill and now... The other side that I can combine is, is that like other consideration that we talked about is I could pull all my money out of my RSPs, 
tax, like pretty much tax free now. And right? offset, gonna, offset. Yes, yeah, offset. Yeah, yeah. And I have yeah. the full liquidity to put it in my TFSA to do private land, to do anything with it, really. Right. So yeah. my game plan is I'm going to take the liquidity that I worked when I worked in my corporate job. I have RSPs pull that all out now and then use that to funnel other projects now that I couldn't have had access to before. So we're trying to make light. And in a situation like this, what can you do to, to make it beneficial? And this is the best way we have it structured out, right? Interesting. But anyways, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I wanted to chat about. Welcome back to social media. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> we'll get into that in the next one. But uh, doing some credit card points uh, hacking at yeah. the moment. Yeah. I think people have seen on social media. <laughs> but um. But yeah, I've been, been doing some points, points hacking and learning a little bit more about that. And it seems like uh, it's going to be a good time for me to travel. I want to take some business class trips I've never done in my life. <laughs> I don't, I'm too frugal to do it because usually it's like eight, nine K. So I never spend that sort of money. Uh, a one way, eight, eight, nine K one you just way. Lose it, eh? <laughs> so just I'm going to use my points and, and just sort of live life a little bit. Right. And <laughs> I work, I worked hard for a reason. I want to live that lifestyle that I, that I've dreamed about. And I, I guess I made a lot of my earlier content was around that, but anyways, enough rambling, uh, between us, we're going to jump into today's podcast episode. We have a very special guest. We have Daryl Frankfurt. If you guys are on Twitter at all, or you listen to other podcasts, such as the Canadian real estate show, you might be familiar with the name Daryl. He's a super experienced real estate investor, super interesting story. He got started investing. I think it was like in the early 2000s, 2006 or so. Uh, where he jumped straight into development, did well on his first project, then almost went bankrupt on his other two projects after that, but rebounded since and explored land assembly and is now doing a potential seven-story development in Forest Hill. There's so many golden nuggets in this episode. I don't know about you, Mai, but this has been one of my, I guess, favorite episodes that we recorded in a while. It's just things and strategies that we never thought of. Yeah, yeah, it's it's different, and uh, you know, Daryl's a pretty transparent guy. So we go into kind of the, some of the hardships he faced back in like oh six, oh seven, oh eight, the mistakes he made there as well. And land assembly, like we all know it, we all hear about it, but you never really kind of dig into the entire business model behind it, and like who do you flip it to, and so on and so on, right? So and his project's pretty friggin' cool and, and pretty big, big scale, right? So yeah, I guess I'll I'll, I'll wrap it up and I'll introduce Daryl this time. Austin normally does it, but guys, make sure you guys check out the episode if you guys enjoy it. You know, share it with a friend, share it on social, share it, drop a comment, whatever you can kind of do to show some support. Dale's got a pretty cool project. If anyone's interested in, in investing in it, I would definitely reach out to him. I think in the, in the episode, he kind of lets us know how to kind of get in touch. Um, but yeah, if you guys are looking to be part of a development, pretty cool opportunity, but yeah, hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hello everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Daryl Frankfort. Daryl, how's it going, my man? It is going well. How are you? Not doing too bad. Been good, too. Good? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Daryl, for anyone that doesn't know you, we usually start off the podcast just asking you to kind of introduce yourself, give us your background, who you are, how you got into this space, and kind of, yeah, the entire rundown. Give us this, your life story. I like to think of myself as a real estate developer, but uh, I, I'm probably more known for being one of the co-hosts of the Canadian Real Estate Show these days. It tends to take up a lot of my time, actually, that show as well. But for the most part, I'm a real estate developer. I, I try and stay in the niche of putting assemblies together in Toronto or GTA. How I got into it is a really, really long story, but uh, started out 
in a lumber yard that my family owns. Started to see, you know, all these other developers coming and going and thinking, well, if those guys can do it, I can do it. So started building houses and then just, you know, turned into a general contractor and slowed my way into developing bigger properties. And then, you know, there's a few bumps and bruises along the way, but uh, here we are now. And I consider myself a real estate developer, but uh, I wear many hats. Yeah, I think your story is is super interesting. I heard you, I don't, were you on Tom Story's podcast, I think? Yeah. yeah you're, you're on someone's podcast and I was listening through. So I don't want to skip over that part because I think sort of the beginning is what really dictated what you're doing now. So like just to put timelines on it, mm-hmm. when you first considered going into investing, what year was that and what was your first sort of project? Can you walk us through it? Sure. Um, so 2006, I decided that I wanted to be a custom home builder. I bought a property in a bidding war at the uh, Leslie and Lawrence area. I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. I modeled my way through building a first house and, uh, through that experience gained the bravado to do two at the same time, the next time. And unfortunately for me, the idea was right. I was pretty good at what I was doing, but the timing was horrible because I bought two very large projects. And like, if you want to talk about underfunded, like I had almost no money in two giant houses and the market just, Hey, and I, I, I'd be lying if I said like, I didn't kind of sense it was going to happen, but I was young, naive. And I thought, you know, I could get out and the market dictated otherwise. So in 2008, 2009, I got stuck with some pretty pricey inventory and things didn't work out so well for, for me, but, uh, it was a nice claw back or climb out of a a nice deep hole I made for myself. So if anything, I learned that if you just keep going and you're persistent that, you know, you can dig yourself out of any mess that you create. But I'll be honest, thank God it wasn't a few years later and I didn't amass, you know, more momentum and more equity. And I didn't like blow up even bigger whenever that was going to happen because the inevitable slowdown in the market seems to be inevitable, (laughs) right? You can't escape. Yeah, it. and it's interesting that you say that because we we saw that with flippers essentially, right? The guys that yeah. starting twenty twenty did sure. one flip, use that profit, do two, use that do four, and then whatever you end up in the market just goes boom. What you've got like ten flips. But wait, so I'm just curious, like how do you compare that time to what we're dealing with today? Not to kind of jump ahead in your story or anything like that, but just want to kind of yeah. get an idea of, you know, do you think it's comparable to today? Do you think it was completely different? Like what stood out? That's a great question because I don't really remember back then inflation being a, a big part of the the mix. I'm positive there wasn't, you know, world wars that just broke out. So now definitely feels different than then. But I mean, in my opinion, like all the same pressures on the Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve are kind of present now all of a sudden. Like we were just talking about on this week's show, like I can't find a scenario now where everybody doesn't have to pump a ton of money into the economy. So whatever they just yanked out forcefully is going to flood back in. 
I think, and probably on some kind of epic proportion, because not only do we need money to fund all these wars and all this craziness going on, but all these social programs here, like what about we should have a war on immigration here in Canada because it's out of control. It's destroying the country. Right. Yeah. Like there's all these things that just force the government to print more money somehow. So I mean, <laughs> eventually it trickles down to all the people. We end up paying it through taxes or through taking out loans or somehow we, we pay for it, but we're going to, I think we're going to start flooding the market with a ton of money right now, but it's not like liquid money for real estate. It's like money for super wealthy corporations to make stuff for wars. I think maybe some infrastructure, but what happens in this environment, right? When all of a sudden like that, because even the debt, like to pay for the debt, you got to print money. Like there's so many reasons why printing is going to have to happen soon. So what happens to real estate when you print a ton of money? Even if rates have to keep going up to fight inflation, right? It's going to be nutty. Yeah. So it seems like you're betting that prices are, correct me if I'm wrong, in the medium term, it's, it's going to go up. And I just want to make one thing clear as well of what you said. I think most economists, most even real estate investors agree that immigration's a bit out of control. We're not saying to cut it to zero and not oh, let any yeah. immigrants in there, but I mean, to let in 1.1 million people in our country a year, that probably undercounted as well. With housing shortages, permits going down, you're setting yourself up for a recipe of disaster. Some, like someone's going to pay for it down the line. So no, I, I totally agree with you there. I was going to add one thing here. At the same time, like we, we are in unprecedented levels of debt that we had to take on in the last two years. And what's the game plan then to pay off all this debt other than to increase your GDP and our efficiency is not necessarily going up, right? It's not like we're now making a shit ton of more money per capita or on a per business level, right? So that is really the solution, unfortunately, which is just poor planning around it. But <laughs> you're bringing in people that their only skill is either they were born or that they're students, right? You're really like the ratio of true. people yeah. with money yeah. and that yeah. can be productive in our society and help grow the economy is not large in comparison to the ones that can't, right? So we're bringing in all of these people who help, you know, if you own a school, like, whoa, like there's a beautiful deal, right? If you own some kind of homeless shelter or some kind of homeless <laughs> hotel, you know, yeah. you're, you're winning yeah. right now, but. These are the wrong people to bring in. Like, okay, we have a housing shortage and we have an infrastructure issue all over the place and like things need to get done. And if we're going to print money, I mean, why are we sending it to Ukraine? Why don't we build some bloody houses here with whatever amount of money they have available? Like, let's just build some houses here. But we don't and we won't and we'll, you know, we'll fight about green belts and we'll keep pumping money. So, so what you're saying is, so, so this is what I have been saying for a while is that like, it doesn't matter if, if everybody's pumping money into the economy at the same time, like all the countries are doing it simultaneously and everybody's kind of keeping lockstep, then that inflation doesn't hurt us as a country versus other countries, right? Everybody stays on the same kind of ground as far as trading is concerned, but everybody's dollars turn to shit locally, yeah. right? everybody's dollar doesn't go far. And so like in this environment, oil's going to keep going up and food is going to keep going up and taxes are going to keep going up. And so even with inflation, let's say they keep raising inflation rates 
or, or interest rates interest to rate. eight, nine, ten percent. Like that adds to the problem. That makes everybody's mortgages that are renewing, you know, people are going to be renewing soon at six and then at seven and then at eight. Like there's nothing that pushes inflation down other than just absolute destruction. But I think what happens before absolute destruction is you have all these people that need houses and you have all these people that want to invest and we'll have like some weird event again that causes this boom in the market and all this massive printing. We have to have one more left in us, one more massive (laughs) print from everybody before the thing really disintegrates. But I mean, things are heating up in the world at an unprecedented speed right now. I don't know if you're following events, but like, yeah, it's getting crazy and it's getting crazy fast. So I haven't had enough time. Like if you're making a model of the future right now, you, how do you have one that is concrete at the moment? Cause things yeah. just change so crazy fast. No, I agree. There's a lot of variables out there right now and things are constantly evolving and changing, right? And it just makes things like anything that happens on a global scale is eventually going to impact Canada one way or another. It depends on how drastic the impact is. It depends on what's happening. But if there is a full blown war, then then yes, I mean, in some way or impact, we're going to feel it in our economy. But before like digging down too deep into that, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. One of the things that I find really impressive with your story is, is that you wanted to get into development and you jumped right into it, right? Now, most people don't have the guts to do something that big. And you had, from my understanding, you had very little experience or knowledge in that space. I want to tie it back into the real estate. Like how, how did you manage to get through that project? Did you know the right people? How did you fund it? How did you choose the right project? Like how did you even go about beginning that because me and Mayu have been looking into development because we have some vacant land in Windsor but even us we're a little bit worried like we don't know where to even start right well so the first project was a house and I had worked for family in the lumber industry and I had helped with parts of building like lots of houses subdivisions but parts framing finished carpentry putting on roofs But I was young and I thought I knew everything, right? So I had left my job and I had decided that I was going to be a builder. And I was kind of weird. My wife for my 30th birthday surprised me with a trip to go see Donald Trump and Tony Robbins and Robert Kiyosaki in San Francisco. And so I was working on buying this house. So I gave my realtor a blank check and I said, get me that house, right? And I left and I think the, the asking price was $599. This is 2006. $599, not a great lot, nice area, big like water tower across the street when you walk out your front door. And he put in a bid for $651 and I got a call. Well, you got it. You did it. Like, way to go. And I was like, great. Okay. Now <laughs> what? I don't even know what to do now. So somebody told me you got to find money. So I start and I had just quit like my family job and a second, my wife's family business. And so I had no income. So, you know, we had to do some interesting stuff to get our loan, our mortgage and then construction financing. I was running around the town like a crazy person. I would talk to anybody. This person would lead to this person. This person would lead to this person. And finally, I was at a bar mitzvah and Somebody I've just known forever came up to me, put his arm around me and said, I hear you're a big builder now. Like who's financing it? 
And he said, I have no idea. I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to close soon. And he said, I know somebody that's perfect for you. I'll introduce you. And so he introduced me and it was a, it was a great deal. High interest, but no payments until I closed on the house, like when I sold it. So, and you know, he paid all the trades directly. I didn't have to worry about anything but building this house. So I met this guy and he told me, make a budget. And I, I left and a week later I come back to him. I go, I don't know how to make a budget. And I'm crying in this guy's office. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I, I'm going to lose all my money. I don't know what to do. And he put his arm around me. He said, don't worry, we're going to help you make this budget. We're going to get the deal done and we're, we're going to fund the deal. So we moved forward and I just started watching all these houses getting built and all these subdivisions. And I'd watch like every video I could find. And I just started kind of figuring out how to build a house. And I, everybody took advantage of me for a year. Everybody charged me way too much money, but we built a beautiful house. I went into every credit card, every line of credit. Like I, I had no income. It was crazy, but it was a good market and we sold the house right away and we made some money, paid off all our debts and decided to buy two more. And that's where the wheels kind of fell off because that took us into 2008, 2009. And even though like you heard the rumblings, if you were listening, and if I listened to my wife, I probably would have done things a little differently, but I just kept plowing ahead and plowing ahead and the market kept getting worse and worse. I said to myself, like, Wealthy people have money. They're going to buy this house anyways. But the uh, wealthy people are smart. They wait a little while, right? Uh, yeah. They have cash and they buy a deal. <laughs> so what was the pivot then? Because so, 2008, because if you did your first one, 2006, maybe you finished 07. You buy your second one, 07, 08 kind of timeline. You probably finished somewhere in 08, 09. I bought yeah, two. Bought so two. I, bought, I bought a house. And so I learned a valuable lesson on the first one that you don't want to deal with trees. So I bought this lot that had no trees and I went away to the cottage for a week and I got a call from my realtor. He says, there's another house for sale on the same street. You just bought that lot on. I think you should buy it. And I was like, okay, let's buy it. How are we going to buy it? We have no money left and we're in Montremblant right now. So I called my dad. I said, I'm going to send somebody by your house. Lend me 50 grand. I'm putting a deposit on the house. And he did. And we put a deposit on the next house. I never saw it. I never went to it. It turned out that that was a very, very bad idea for all kinds of reasons. But we ended up building two houses on the same street, going into the worst economy of my lifetime for sure, and got decimated. Like they just sat. And so if you go back a few months before the world started falling apart back then, I was like test driving my new Porsche, bought my wife a new Denali, like souped up. And I was expecting a big payday. And so what I thought would sell for 2.2 million ended up selling. One of them sold for 136. Oh, one crap. sold for one seven and a quarter. And yeah, it wow. was a nightmare. Yeah. We had to sell our house where we lived with the rent for a long time. It was a, it was a struggle climbing back for a while. But, uh, so I pivoted into being a general contractor. <laughs> which sucked. Yeah, it sucks, but it's amazing that you, you were able to get through those kind of losses. I should have stayed a developer though. Like I shouldn't have switched to the general contractor. I should have kept going, but I was so scared, right? Uh, 
I mean, people don't know if you're just a developer, sometimes, you know, unless you're layering all kinds of deals on top of each other. But if you're a small guy like me, sometimes you go two years without getting a penny. Right. Yeah. The payout happens at the end. Sometimes the payout happens at the end or sometimes you get like a little bit of fees along the way, but not not enough to live a certain lifestyle all the time. Right. I've I've got a client right now that that went through SPA for five years and now he's finally looking at maybe a partial payout or maybe even like losing it if he actually can't sell it. Right. So you're definitely putting a lot on the line to for for that end payout. Right. And there's risks and rewards as a result. Um, but look, I'm interested. So you pivoted to general contracting. It sounds like you did that maybe for a couple of years and then you switched into land assembly. Kind of like, what was that transition like? And explain kind of what you do in the land assembly side. I think we understand, but yeah. Just the construction company got so big and so crazy. And there's so many issues doing that many things on so many projects. And it was like, I just wanted some peace and quiet and a little bit of a different pace because when you own a construction company, rain is very scary in the middle of the night because you don't know who's going to call you with some kind of weird leak or problem or something. And sometimes it doesn't happen, but if you have a big enough company, eventually, you know, you have to work hard and you have to work long hours and crazy hours. So I found a mentor who was willing to teach me the ropes in bigger development. And I closed my construction company down and I went to go work for this gentleman and started putting assemblies together. And so basically what I do is I pinpoint good potential properties or building sites and I find out who the owners are and I offer them money to buy their their properties. I tend to be fairly successful at it in the past and I don't know what I'm doing differently than others. I just know you know, kind of what I do. I don't know what other people do. Anytime I do a deal with somebody new, I learn like a whole new way of doing deals because, you know, I do things my way, right? The way that I was taught or figured out, right? I get to do the same deal twice. Now going into, I kind of want to go through your mental headspace because we know people, we're Uh newer investors, Mayu and I, we've been in the game for about five years, Mayu maybe a little bit longer. But we know people who are in a similar situation and when they've lost everything, they've pivoted completely outside of real estate. You were still involved with the GCing world. So you were still networking. You were still meeting other people. How did you even get the confidence to get back in the space? Because when you lose like something like your family house and you've made a lot of money on your first development and then you lost that all on the other two that you've done, it's tough to get back on your feet, right? It's, yeah. it's a challenge. So can you walk me through how you were able to do that. Cause I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who are in similar situations or who know people who were, are in your situation. Yeah. My goal was always to be where I'm at now. So the general contracting part was like a means to an ends to just kind of get back on my feet and have something that had a cash flow because doing like building one house at a time has very little cash flow for the builder. Especially when you're new, nobody wants to give you a salary. And especially if you're putting no equity into things or very little. So the general contracting was a scared reflex to get money coming in because people were offering me work and I was turning it down. And I I said, you know what? Like if I'm going to feed my family, I better start saying yes. And so like the goal was to get back to where I'm at now 
right? Or where I thought I was, which was a property developer, right? There was no other option that I thought would get me there other than just staying near it as close as it as possible. And through being a general contractor, I got to develop a lot of properties. They just, I didn't own them, right? I developed a lot of property for other people, whether it was commercial or residential, I got to do, it's the same thing. So what I do for a 50 story building or what I do for a 12 story building or what I do for a house, the process with the city is very similar, right? So, so it just was like the other alternative was going to get a job. And that was never going to keep the lifestyle that I had grown accustomed to. That was never going to get me out of debt. And it was never going to get me the life that I really wanted to have. So it was like, like, just knock this shit off the list today and then do it again tomorrow. And, you know, pretend like you're not afraid all the time. And that's it. It was just like this stupid persistence and stubbornness. Right. Because my wife was like, can you honestly, like, you're good at what you do. Somebody will pay you a lot of money. Like, just go get a job. And I know how I am. I had lots of jobs. Like somehow every boss of mine was a total idiot. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It also seems like Daryl, you you were, you weren't like, maybe I'm wrong here, but you weren't doing like residential renovations. You were, it sounds like doing like a bigger scale, like a more profitable form of GCing or I was doing everything. So I was doing commercial projects. I was doing big custom houses and I was doing crazy, big, amazing renovations for people. And then it turned into all kinds of stuff because you see, my goal was to get back into development, dig myself out of a hole. And I was young and I wanted to do it fast and I couldn't wait. So I opened up a drywall business as part of it. Cause I figured I'm doing all these projects. I can siphon some money instead of paying another guy. I can make some money in drywall disaster that turned into a framing company. That was pretty cool for a while. Ultimately disaster cabinetry company, same thing. Like I just tried all these spinoffs cause I had a good brand. I was doing a lot of marketing, a lot of advertising and we had a big company and I figured I got all this space in the office. I had a showroom and uh, yeah, I mean, my heart fell out of it because it wasn't what I wanted to do, right? I was like this slave to all these people and I had $80,000 payroll every two weeks. And it was like, what am I doing? I had all these people calling me like, you should be on a show. And I was like, I was doing sizzle reels for networks over and over. And I, I kept sabotaging it because... I couldn't imagine getting deeper into this, making it bigger and putting on a face in front of the camera like I was enjoying myself. It was making me nuts, nuts. And so just literally out of desperation, I found somebody that was willing to pay me enough money to cover my bills every month and teach me development. And so I jumped, I wound down that business. I didn't even try and sell it. I wanted nothing to do with it. It was probably at its most profitable of all time too when I did that, which was crazy, but it was never about the money. It was just about maintaining until I got to the next level, right? And so where most people I don't think are able to sustain that kind of pressure and pain to get to the next level, I, this is my superpower. I'm so dumb that I just keep going, right? I just keep going no matter what's going on. And it's so far 
it hurt me at the beginning. And so what was great about getting killed is now in this kind of an environment or any environment, I figured out a way to set things up that I have less risk than before. I still have risk, right? But I've figured out a way to set it up where I've mitigated my risk in a comfortable way. And I've also learned not to just, you know, buy something that the guy has a blank check on, right? But uh, now, years later, that was the best thing that ever could have happened to me because it forced me into this nightmare of learning construction to a degree. Like when you do renovations, you have to understand engineering to do it properly to figure out different things for different people in different situations, right? Because an engineer or anybody will come and tell you how to do things. You got to know how to do things to be successful, right? So that first one, like I was following everybody around like a lost puppy. What do I do? What do I do? Who do I call? What? So, I mean, that's not a good way of doing things, right? Yeah. And there's almost no time to learn when you're in the midst of a project, right? You just have to make a decision almost immediately. Otherwise you're just sinking in money. But now, like, again, like you're taking a step back and now you're, you're evolving and you're learning so you can take on your next project there. I know Maya, you, you wanted to interject with something, right? No, I was just going to say, let's talk about kind of how you transitioned to the land assembly model. Cause yeah. like you said, it's kind of a, like a call it a risk controlled method, or maybe you're like your downside is limited, but also your upside is a little bit more limited as well. Right. But you know, you, you went to work for someone else. You kind of learned probably how to put together deals, the process and so on. Right. But at I'm some not point, to. I'm, I'm not, not okay. to is what I learned there actually. But yeah. <laughs> At some point you transitioned to, I, I found my own deal. I'm going to do this on my own and just walk us through what that process is like. Before you get into that, for the viewers okay. who don't know, explain <laughs> what land assembly is oh, for, fair, for people fair. who don't know. Sure. Yeah. So land assembly is basically taking multiple properties that are adjacent to each other and turning them into a larger, better for development parcel. I mean, really the only reason to do it is because it makes a better development site. 20 foot lot on its own can only do X, but if you have five of them, a hundred foot lot can do Y. And generally we want to do Y more than we want to do X. So it's just getting multiple people on board with the same plan at the same time, really. So your exits are always going to be to developers, right? I'm assuming. Right. Um, but you, you found your first deal, you, you put together the deal, obviously you would have had to negotiate with multiple people. Are you closing or are you just putting together the paper and flipping the paper? Okay. So at the beginning, it was just flipping paper, right? Yeah. Getting the deal tied up, flipping paper. I need a fee. I need money. Let's go. Right. Yeah. Over time, I learned that that's a really great way to not get a fee because you really don't have much control over the process and you're dealing with people that really understand how this game works. And so when you're assigning something at the last minute, people find reasons why your fee, which you need desperately, has to go down or disappear altogether. Trust me. So I just learned that I needed to get more control of the deal. So now it turned into instead of assigning, it would be we're going to go firm and then we're going to sell the deal because now we've got a little more control. Also, good way for the lift to disintegrate at the last second. So just over time, I started to learn that closing on the properties is the best way to do it. But it took years of, you know, losing, you know, when you think you're making this much money, 
in three weeks and it gets cut in half or a quarter or whatever. You learn to find ways to not let that happen if possible. And really the best way is to close on the deal. And then, in my opinion, the beautiful thing about assemblies is that generally you buy a one big property and you put in an application for zoning and you push the value by doing that application. So there's one upward force on price. If you do an assembly, you get that additional layer of lift in price. You should, if you're doing it properly, so that in environments like today, where you have lots of things that are trying to push price down, you have some room because you've got those two things you're planning to do that are going to increase the value, right? So what used to be just brazen bravado and let's go, let's get a deal has now turned into like a lot of risk analysis and a lot of downside analysis. Because those first deals, if you saw my spreadsheets, there was no risk at all. Those things were making money in every single scenario on, under the sun. So now on these deals, I mean, they're bigger deals. There's more room for people to make fees so you can get paid at increments along the way. But there's just, there's more value in putting an assembly together and then adding more value by pushing the value with some kind of zoning, right? And a better use for the property. and then. If you have the courage and the funding, you would take it through to construction and really make a lot of money. And so up until recently, so I did all the construction back in the day and I really decided I don't really want to do construction ever again. And so up until now, very recently, it's just been get it zoned, sell it to the next guy or put in an application and sell it to the next guy or assemble it and put it to the next guy. But closing has been a part of the recipe that I think allows me to actually make the value that I put in because that guy that does that work, I don't think people understand. Like if you want to learn about real estate quickly, go put an assembly together. Go learn because you'll have two of the exact same thing right beside each other that do exactly the same thing. They generate the same revenue. They do everything the same. They're the same size, everything. But those contracts will not look anything alike. And those negotiations will not look anything alike. And the lawyers won't do, like, do you understand? Like nothing will be like it. So if you do six of them side by side by side by side, what a learning experience in how real estate really works. And so if you do one of them, you gain a great experience of how real estate can work on such a crazy level. But the beautiful thing about these deals that I work on now, and what I was saying before is that you do the same amount of work on this as a house, once you get the assembly together. But the development work is still, you're putting in an application, you're putting a plan in, you know, you're doing all the consulting work that they need you to do. It's all very similar. And then you put it in, they tell you you can't do that. And then you revise it and they maybe tell you you can do that. But there's bigger numbers. You're taking on a lot of risk by actually closing these assembly deals, all right? Because you've got your financing costs, you've got your double land transfers in Toronto, right? which are all chipping away at the margin that maybe you could have charged as a fee, but I understand the fee side as well. <laughs> yeah, he's a, but you would think that these guys, they want your next deal as well, right? If, if you're not a one and done kind of guy and they want to value the relationship, they're going to make sure you get paid, you know? Well, there's a lot of guys that are bringing them deals, right? And most of them are garbage. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you would think that, but sure. I mean, how many other things are there on this planet that you would think work this way and work the exact opposite. 
This is one of them. Yeah. I can relate to it. As someone who wholesales real estate, like basically we get distressed properties and assign it. When someone sees a big assignment fee, it doesn't even matter if the numbers make sense to them or not. They try to negotiate it down. And if they think that I have no capacity to close on the property myself, they imagine that they have all the leverage and can bully me around on pricing, right? So when you close on it, I guess, yes, like you you have debt that you have to worry about, but you have, as you mentioned, you have more control of it and you can take advantage of the synergies of the property before you sell. Now, let me ask you this. We're going to jump into your latest development project shortly, but I, I want to, I just want to ask a couple of quick questions about the land assembly side. How do you even identify a good neighborhood site area to, to begin the land assembly? Like, how do you even, like, do you narrow it down based on a certain criteria? And then like, what are the next steps after that on a high level? Could you walk us through the steps? So first and foremost, you have to understand the planning of the area. And then once you know the planning of the area and you have an idea of a price point you want to attack, you can basically create the opportunities in most areas. So you'd have to know what other people are doing as far as development applications in the area to get an idea. You'd have to understand the planning rationale in the area by the city and what they're looking for people to do. And once you've kind of pinpointed your area, now you take a map and you do decipher the difference between what is already developed, what is under development, and what could be developed. My kids think that their dad colors for a living because I'm sitting on the floor with these giant maps all the time coloring. You start to see properties jump out at you that would be good for different size developments. So if you're looking for a high rise development, you'll need a certain size. And if you know planning, you know, you'll know what size of land you're looking for. And as you're looking at the map, you'll see, I can accomplish this here and I can accomplish this here. I can accomplish this here. I can accomplish this here. And then once you've decided where you can accomplish this, you have to figure out who owns them. You have to figure out, well, I think you have to figure out what you want to pay for it before you call the people. A lot of people get into a conversation with an owner and say, I want to buy your property. And the homeowner goes, or the property owner goes, how much do you want to pay me? And they go, well, how much do you want? And they go, well, how much do you want to pay me? Click. Or, you know, you, you, people have weird strategies. But for me, I've figured out exactly what I'm building on that property, what I think it's worth. I'm not obviously offering top dollar for it instantly, but I'll throw out a feeler that I think was is enticing and reasonable and should get the deal done or at least get the conversation to continue. Because the worst thing, in my opinion, you can do is say, well, what do you want for it? Right. And, mm -hmm. and also, I think it's an advantage to not be a real estate agent when you're doing this. I think people are much more willing to talk to somebody who's not a realtor. Yeah. Uh -huh. People, mm -hmm. I think, you know, they have a different discussion with a realtor because they really think the realtor wants a listing. And I'm calling and I'm saying, hey, I'm the buyer. I want to buy it. And then when they yeah. say, how much do you want to buy it for? I say 2.4 million, right? No bullshit. So, so like, I'm trying to understand this. When you're doing a land assembly, you're reaching out to a seller directly. Like, if we use Austin's business as an example, the entire business is built on buy it under market value, be able to charge a spread and resell it to another investor that's yeah. probably going to then flip it, right? But when you're doing land assembly, you are identifying parcels of land that the average individual does not see the highest and best use 
of that parcel, like the value is in the parcel, right? So are you able to then pay more than, like if, if I was to put a, a random bungalow in Scarborough on the market and it sells for a million dollars, right? Hold on, hold on. The value is not in the, the parcel. The value is in the planning on the parcel that the developer can convince everyone around them is the right thing to do. Because, I mean, if when we get into my deal, I'll explain that yeah. further. Maybe that's a good segue into the deal. But, but yeah. like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's do that. Let's do that. I bought this deal from another developer. He couldn't figure out what the hell to do with this deal. I took my experience from other deals and real experience, not like I know anything special from my years doing this, came in and said, holy cow, these guys are like missing something big here. I think this, right? And it turns out I was wrong. It's even better than I thought, right? The city on this one came back with the craziest feedback I have ever heard in my life. Right. But this is a result of just kind of knowing the planning that should be on this property that isn't currently. Right. So in some cases, you're right that the value is in the parcel, but not in an assembly, I don't think, because in an assembly, you have to understand that end product that's going to be there in order to pay the right price at the beginning, years before you're even selling the end product. So you have to in my opinion, I don't know how other guys do, but you have to like know what building's going to go there. So if we look back in the history of my deals, if you saw a picture of the napkin that, or the piece of paper that I first drew, most of the buildings are super similar to it because I'm an avid studier of the planning. And I talk to municipal lawyers and planners and anybody that wants to talk about the most boring subject on earth all day, any day, right? Uh Because if you know, for example, on this property that I bought, everybody before me looked at it as a townhouse development site and it will never work ever as a townhouse development site because of policies imposed by the city, rental replacement policy, which if you want, we can get into. But the mixture of not having the right vision for the property coupled with a policy that has to be dealt with from the city made it so that nobody else could figure out this parcel. But I looked at it instantly. And again, not because I'm great, just because scenarios I've dealt with on previous deals. I came in and I said, if I can get this done and this done, then this thing is uh, the best deal I've ever found in my life. (laughs) But I had to figure out how to deal with a couple of major issues. One very simple question is, is each house in an assembly worth more on the market individually or when you buy it as part of an assembly, like to the seller? Well, I mean, it it definitely is worth more together than apart. Right. To the seller. Like if I, if I was a seller, I'd want, okay. To everyone. I guess that makes sense. Actually, my unit, it's not really an assembly, but there was a private company who wanted to expropriate one of our buildings, yeah. one of our duplexes, and they way overpaid to what market value is because they knew what the value was going to be for them. And we weren't willing to sell it any less. And they just ended up, and I assume it's similar in an assembly. If the planning, first step is planning, and then you figure out the target properties you need to buy to be able to execute that, right? If you know that you can get 
a valuation of 18 million and you can buy it for 12, right? Or anything less than the 18. Yeah. Based on, it depends what your model looks like, right? And then everybody else has to buy into it. But if you can do that, like that's what you're trying to do. So mm-hmm. if you look at, a, at an assembly and you're like, I can pay a total of 16 million for all five. You don't even care what you pay what for, right? Yeah, now exactly. Right? As long as yep. the total's at most 16, like you keep plowing forward. But yep. it, it's like a crazy living, breathing organism because everybody starts, you know, thinking theirs is worth more and there's, they have a nicer kitchen or whatever. Honestly, we can go another yeah. hour on that assembly, but <laughs> we got to cut it short now and we yeah. got to move on to your deal. I heard you mention it on the podcast. It was a deal that a lot of people, maybe you can share, but a lot of people have turned it down as you mentioned, but you saw something different in it mm-hmm. and it seems like it's going to be a really lucrative deal. Can you walk us through what that deal is? And I know some things you're not able to share, share whatever you can about it. Sure. So we bought 10 properties in the Forest Hill Village. Very exciting. This does not come up very often at all. Listen, the previous owner, like I said, they saw it as 11 townhouses or 10 townhouses, eight townhouses, whatever it was, probably seven or eight. And the issue really was that the city has this, these crazy rules about rental replacement. So these houses have been empty since 2005, but at some point there was 11 units on the property. So the city said you have to put 11 rental replacement units. And so when you're looking at something that has seven or eight units and 11 of them have to be rental replacement and you're in Forest Hill, it doesn't make any sense. The the numbers will never work ever. And so I simply came in and I, I spoke to it. For me, that's just a hurdle to overcome. If you like assemblies is not even about putting properties together. It's about overcoming so many hurdles that all these different egos and personalities and governing bodies throw into the mix. And if you can like handle all of those and the performance still makes money at the end of the day, then you have a beautiful thing potentially, right? So on a previous deal, I had a lease in place with Rogers and they had a a lease on the roof for like 30 years. And so people also, they looked at the deal, they saw this Rogers lease and they ran in panic. And I knew from a previous deal where I relocated a shopper's drug mart that it's like, it's just a matter of effort and discussion and money, right? So it just became a conversation with the city. Like, how are we going to deal with this rental replacement? Because there's no way in the world that you can, I I said, guys, let's be realistic. Who wants to live in a building where they're paying 4 million bucks for a unit and there's some rental replacement in the building? This thing's never going to pencil for anyone. You guys have been fighting with people since 2005 and they're sitting derelict and everybody wants this deal to move. So because of all the new policies in place, I looked at it and I said, if I can get rid of the rental replacement from the deal and I can get a building on this thing instead of townhouses because of like, not just because I want that, like this is nestled in the perfect place for what I wanted to do right? It's sitting beside all kinds of apartment buildings. It's sitting beside all other uses, but it's in a neighborhood. This is a sweet spot right now. There's no reason why the city shouldn't give you like something because you're not even beside houses, right? You just, for some reason on the planning map, you're marked as a neighborhood, right? And there's all kinds of these all over the city right now. So this one just happened to be in beautiful zoning and I knew the zoning and I said, 
uh, to TK. TK, we have to put it. TK told me about it on the show and I caught, I cut it out. I cut it out of the show because I was like, bro, we got to make an offer right now. This is the best deal ever. You have no idea. And TK was like talking about it. Like it was like, just whatever. You want to yeah. look at this? Because it came across my desk and I was like, we have to make an offer at asking price right now. Go, 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 go. And it was just because I knew I was going to get a six story building here. So we designed a six story building. We got all kinds of support from the neighbors, which is insane. We have a deal with the city that says that they'll let me put the rental replacement somewhere else in the city, not on this site, which unlocks Forest Hill revenue on the site and moves the rental replacement to somewhere else that I can figure it out on another deal, Uh right? This is a very small building, very high end, very niche, very boutique, very different. So it's going to command crazy revenues, right? And we got lucky that I was right that the building, so check this out. We design all these nice amenity spaces on the main floor, like most condo buildings. And we, we put in the proposal and the city goes, we would like you to have suites on the main floor. And I was like, crap, that's not good. Because what are we going to do with the amenity space then? You know, yep. have to push it off somewhere right. else, like in better living space. This is horrible. We want you to put the amenity space on the seventh floor. What? That's interesting. What's seventh <laughs> floor? There is no yeah. seventh floor. For real? You get it. And I got it in writing from the city that they will consider for sure six stories by a seventh story to move, which is crazy, which now makes the deal even better than ever expected. Because really the performer worked good at four store. It was good. It was a good deal. And like a lot of people would have jumped on this thing. Five stories was a grand slam. There is no category for six. And I have not even run a performer at seven because most people didn't believe the performer at six. Right? Yeah. They didn't believe what I thought was the real one. And this is an interesting thing because never in my lifetime have I had to dumb down a performance to make it not look ridiculous. Right. But that, that's a cool thing. And <laughs> I, I don't want to say never because it's happened once before, but I got an appraisal back in this environment that's higher than the purchase price, <laughs> which is crazy on an assembly because on assemblies, <laughs> you normally, like we just discussed, paid more per yeah. property than it's worth, right? So it, the deal is just amazing. And the timing is, at least from a planning perspective, is amazing. But the economy at the moment is a little unsettling, right? Okay. Yeah. So, but again, it's like things will be better later. So it's so when you're buying and making an offer on this property that popped up the show that TK was talking about, are you going in and you're giving no conditional offers? I'm assuming you're doing like no, very like pattern of the conditions. Yeah, as long as you can get. Time. As long as <laughs> you can get. Because, yeah. the, I mean, this one's different. I got to deal with one owner on this one. Somebody else did a lot of the legwork, right? They didn't do what needed to be done to make it profitable, but they put the assembly together. So this one actually I did, wasn't really technically an assembly for me. So then we're like, where do you go from there? Right. So you've got this long conditional period or did you raise capital to close it? Yeah. You, start raising raising the debt. you have to raise the equity. And right now we're raising some equity. I, I don't know if when this airs will be sold out or if it'll be closed or, or what the story will be, but 
So to talk about what you mentioned at the beginning, a, a couple of years ago, like my last deal, we leveraged it to the moon. Okay. Comfortably, but we leveraged it to the moon because financing was very different. Three years ago, even two years ago, no, maybe not two years ago, three years ago, for sure. You could borrow on a LTV that like, I don't know where they came from, but people would lend against them, right? The value was a, a fictitious thing, right? And then what happened is everybody tightened up and now they're still maybe doing a 65, 75% LTV, but the V is defined very differently now. Right. Yeah. And so what happens generally when you're doing an assembly, you don't only need money to buy the land because you're going to put an application in. So you need money to carry the properties. You need money to do the development work, to pay all the consultants, to pay all the fees to the city. And right. so, you know, you're buying something for X. Now you need way more than that. Right. So now you have to either bring in some equity or over leverage the property or somehow you're going to have to find the difference. And so now, now you have a lot of people that call themselves family offices that are kind of bridging this gap between yep. debt and equity. And they're doing like, what are they calling it? Dequity? Because it feels like you're borrowing the money, but it's really equity. Convertible, convertible debt, I think is what you call it. Yeah. I don't know if it's yeah. convertible into anything because they're along for the ride and they're a partner in the deal. It just, it's a different way of doing things. And it's mm -hmm. just a different entity that you're dealing with. It's not like a B lender now. It's like there's all these family offices that are quasi development firms almost now. Again, mm -hmm. it's interesting. There's like this new capital advisory firms. <laughs> those are, those are popping up like crazy. And well, just they, a have bunch a, of, yeah. they have a ton of money and everybody really wants to be a developer at the end of the day. And I mean, there's a reason for that because if you do hit a home run, they're very lucrative, right? Yeah. And so you know, they want, instead of to just invest quiet capital at a nice return now, they've seen that there's a way to get a better return on their money if they can get to be part of the higher tier in the investment, right? Mm -hmm. Couple of quick things that I want to note that you, you, you mentioned, but I want to see how important it was the success of this, of this project that you're taking on. You said that the neighbors are mostly apartment buildings. It's not on the residential side. That is probably a big part of it of why you can build an apartment. Because if it's on the residential, I imagine a lot of the neighbors would take issue to it. Is that a wrong assumption or is that, is well, that right? There's some, I mean, there's new planning now that's going to allow inside the neighborhoods there to be more height, but this is a lot more height. And it's definitely right. because it's nestled between a commercial building, a condo, and a bunch of apartment buildings. There's okay. no house other than the other side of the street. There's no house touching it. Had the neighbors had an issue with that, would that would have impacted your ability on what you could have done with the property? Just out of curiosity. Well, we still haven't gone through the process. So the neighbors mm -hmm. could technically still decide that they're not in favor of things. Okay. But these are neighbors that have been living with derelict falling apart houses that are vacant or with some pretty sketchy tenants since 2005. So they really want this to be basically anything but what it is right now. But that's the honest to God truth. So yeah. I just came in at the right lucky time. And at the moment, the neighbors seem to be on board with the deal. And who knows what's going to happen when it gets to be more real for them. But I think in this case, 
we're not pushing, like we're not going for 30 stories. We're going for yeah. six and they're telling us go a little higher. So I don't know how much of a voice the neighbors are going to have in this case, because mm-hmm. we land mm-hmm. in like one of these zones that are calling for higher densification. It's close to subway. It's close to streetcar. It's in near Eglinton and Bathurst around that node. It's in the Forest Hill Village. It's near St. Yeah. Clair and uh, Spadina. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. off of Spadina. I think Just there's a new condo Saint coming Claire. up there as well, actually, that, that they're few, advertising. Yeah. yeah, like 1,600 square feet, something crazy. <laughs> no, no, no. That's cheap. That's not anywhere. That's nowhere near here if it's 1,600 a foot. Everything is really? like 2,000 plus a foot right now in this area. I could believe it based on the location. Yeah. yeah and I think that's even low for this product, to be honest <laughs> with you. But again, we're nowhere near sales yet. We still have to close on the properties and go through the, the process with the city, which could take six months. It could take a year. It could take 18 months. And I'll let Mayu jump in with this question, but one more thing. So you mentioned that the person that assembled the land together was, was thinking about townhouses. It seems like the big differentiator between sort of how you were able to unveil the full true potential is by actually, is it by having conversations with the city and bringing up all of these like points where, oh, like no one's going to build if there's rental replacement there. Like, are you saying that the other person may have not really dug down into all aspects before selling it off or? I just think I know planning and current planning more than them. Okay. And it seems like they're townhouse developers. So I I just think that they have a narrow focus and I just think that they're not as in tune to be honest with you, because they were sitting on a gold mine and they gave it up. I guess they must have needed liquidity and there was probably something else behind it because they definitely didn't make any money by holding these properties and putting this assembly together at all. Like it doesn't make any sense other than they just needed to get out. It was enough and they couldn't figure out how to make any money on it. And they were just cutting their losses, but it was just somebody else I mean, a lot of other people had the opportunity. Everybody that is currently investing in it has looked at it before and looked at it as a townhouse site. All their lawyers said it was a townhouse site. The vendor and their lender sat me down and I asked them specifically, what do you guys think this thing is? And they were serious. They thought it was a townhouse site. So, but I knew going in, it wasn't right. So, but If I didn't have that resolve, maybe I wouldn't have been able to convince everyone that this is what it should be because I saw it. The minute I saw the shape of the property, I knew the building that was going to be on this thing. I knew it was going to be six stories and I knew how I was going to explain why it should be six stories. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a pig and go for eight or 10. Like I just wanted to be fair, reasonable and get this thing back out on the market. I think when you do that, like even my last deal, I went for 14 stories when everybody thought even 12 was crazy. And I sold it to somebody who is now going for 20 stories. Like the city just changed. Right. And I just know about it. And they did it. That's like every deal, every deal that I've been, like I said, I either try and flip it or I have to bring in partners. So a lot of people say no. Right. And then eventually somebody buys into the idea and then everybody sees it after that. Then everybody's like, oh, I wish I bought that one from you or, oh, that's such a great deal. But like you said, like most people aren't looking at it through this lens. So people want to be a developer and they think that you, I drive around the city with people that go, 
oh, if you just bought those three, that would be a great assembly. Like, how much are you paying? What are you putting on it? Like, how do you say that? But people's perception of development is like, you just buy it and you like do this thing and then you make a bunch of money. But like, it's a little more involved than that. But if you can get it down to that, which takes just time and practice, like it can be pretty cool. So Daryl, I, I guess the last question on this one is kind of how you're putting the deal together now. Like I understand like the zoning and, and the, like what you're going to build on it. Right. And that's all great. But obviously a major hurdle is like, so let's close this and then let's go through the entire like development process. Right. Which A will require a significant amount of capital today. B will require more capital for SPA. And then C, if you guys decide to actually develop it and construct it, that'll be even more capital. I'm curious, what are the type of individuals that are partnering up with you. So family office is one side, but for pure equity, are you guys raising capital? Are you not? Do you do the GPLP model? Like what's kind of the structure that you guys take this stuff down with? So this one here's uh, like a GPLP for Ramat. We're working with our partners, Krantz and Capital, who are doing the equity raise on our behalf. Um, And then on my side of things, I have a partnership and we put in our own equity as well, a significant amount of equity. And then we end up, we're partners with an LP with, through Cranston Capital. And if you know Cranston Capital or you've heard, I mean, they're huge in the industry, extraordinary, reputable. They're backed by, I mean, their board of directors is insane. Uh, you should check them out. But just on top of the ability to raise the equity we need to do the deal, they bring all that experience and all of that knowledge into what to be honest with you, I believe is the best deal out there in the city. And I'm not being a showman. It just, it, I got lucky. I got lucky to, to find this deal and to be able to put it together. So the team, because this guy is the lucky guy, I feel I need like a really super strong team behind me because the deal is so incredible. It should be with like, people would think like a really big developer, right? Like a really big, big developer. And so Cranston is like having a giant in our corner, right? Plaza Corp. I don't know if you ever heard of Plaza Corp, but Plaza Corp is the main board member of Krantz. So, and then TMG Builders. I don't know if you ever, ever heard of those guys, but they're a huge, uh, huge general contractor, builds a ton of the buildings for most developers. So those are just two of the board members. So we, we get to get all of that on the team and a bunch of money. I mean, how, how much better could it be? And we still get to be the developer and we still get to build this one out. This one is one that like, I want to put my name on forever. I, I, I swore I would never build again, but this one it's, it's just so small and it's so easy that like, I'm definitely going to put this one together and it's going to be a masterpiece. That's awesome. Uh, So I'm just curious for anyone that's listening to here, if they're interested, is there even room for like regular call it individuals to be involved in projects like this? Or is this more so? You guys are like million dollar minimum raise. You have to be accredited. You have to be an accredited investor, but the the minimum is a hundred thousand. But Cranston also has their own fund that will be investing in the deal. So for people that have less than a hundred thousand, they can put in lower amounts through that fund and still get a a portion of this deal as well. But yeah, I I believe it's a hundred thousand dollar minimum. I mean, I'm hoping at the point of time that this thing airs, that that thing is closed and settled, but you never know. Who knows? Mm-hmm. There's wars breaking out all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're, we're going to release this episode Friday just because it's, uh, it's very timely. So awesome, Daryl. So I think that was a great episode. We definitely, we went 
way longer than normal, but hopefully right. our audience. No, I, I, I think it was really good value. So yeah. hopefully our audience enjoys it, right? But cool. Dear, I, I guess two questions that we usually ask at the end of any episode. So the first question is for newer investors getting started today, or even if we like tailor this kind of the area that you're an expert in, which is development land assembly, for people that are looking to get into that space today in today's market, what's kind of the main piece of advice that you would share with them? Like just learn planning. That's the most important thing. Learn planning and then the rest of it will fall into line. You know, some people think, that, do you need the money first? Do you need the property first? I promise you, if you have a good deal, the money will come from all over the place if you know what you're doing. But you have to have a good deal. You can't just say you have a good deal. You can't go around going to everybody, have a good deal, and nobody ever does any of your deals. You really have to kind of understand. And that the key is to know what you can do on the property before you even start working on the thing. It's the wrong time to know what you can do on a property halfway through when you've spent 30 grand on consulting fees. You really are, hopefully, you know what you can get there. Now your just job is to prove it to everybody else and convince them. Not like figure out what you have when you've got it tied up because somebody was willing to sell you some stupid or overpriced land or something you didn't even know what you could do with, you know, like that, that's why you see a lot of assemblies by realtors on main streets like Finch and Steels and Shepherd, like house after house after house for sale. Most of those don't sell because they're so overpriced. Somebody went to them and said, Hey, if I can get you $3 million each, would you give me the listing? Like, of course I will. If you can get me 3 million bucks for this piece of shit, right? I'll take it any day of the week. Go for it. Take 60 days and let's see what you come back with. But this is dangerous. It's not a no sum game. Those people think their property's worth 3 million now. So next time when you come to them and you say like, I hate to break it to you, but that thing's worth one, two every day of the week. That deal's never getting done for a um, long time because you see how stubborn prices are and how sticky prices yep, can be, right? Yep. It's, it's the same. And, and then these are people that weren't thinking about selling for the most part. Somebody just approaches them, right? So like, how do you get somebody to sell something that they weren't thinking about selling? They have to be pretty bloody enticing. And so how can you be enticing? You have to know that you can pay them more. You can't just yeah. think it. You have to know I'm getting 80 stories on this bad boy, right? Uh-huh. Or six or right. whatever. And you, you just act accordingly. So that's rule number one. I'm teaching my son right now. And it's like hell on earth reading the official plan. But that's where you start. You read that official plan. You torture yourself from beginning to end and know that it's all a bloody bunch of garbage. But you have to get what the city wants you to do. City's telling us all what they want us to do and even where. So if you know it, now you can just go find the opportunities and hopefully the path of least resistance. because. An extra year at borrowing 30 million bucks, especially today. Holy, I don't even want to think about how much that costs. It's awesome. All right. And the second question, Gerald, is your business going in the next five years? I kind of know the answer from our conversation here, but where do you see a business overall growing to? Uh, the development business. I, I'm hoping to start, you know, two projects at a time. In the next few months, normally I've just dealt with one at a time, but I think there's a, a good investor base out there 
for the right deals. I think we're offering deals that are at a scale that most people can't get into like this on deals that most people can't get into like this just because of the size of our company. But just to expand, I guess, double the amount of deals that we do in the next five years. My goal's always been to run this company from a beach somewhere, so I can't do too much with it. Yeah, but you know what? A couple of home one projects and you're good to go chill at the beach after. (laughs) But that's what I keep saying is like, what the hell do these... See, I'm a one-man show, so I can do one deal and live a wonderful life, right? If I do the right deal, one at a time is a wonderful life. Two at a time is unbelievable, but there's I don't see a reason to do more unless you have a a floor of office space and people everywhere, like there's ways to do this in a very, very lucrative and calm environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Appreciate you jumping on on the podcast, Daryl. Honestly, it was a super interesting episode. We definitely learned a ton. I still have, I can't, like I still have tens of questions. So we'll get to that another time. (laughs) I wish people said that at the end of our podcast, that they learned something. That'd be nice. One day, maybe. (laughs) If, uh, if people want to connect with you, follow your journey, learn more or learn more about the investment, how could they best do so? Dealcoreproperties.com. D-E-A-L-C-O-R-E properties.com. There's information. You can sign up on the website. You can see everything about me. It'll link you to the Canadian real estate show. Very easy to find me. Yeah. And on Twitter, I think you're pretty active on there too, right? The Assembly King. The Assembly King on Twitter. Yes, I forgot about that. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a badass handle there. Um, yeah, make sure you check out Daryl and TK's podcast too. I think you guys, speaking with TK, he was saying you guys were getting like 100,000 impressions a month now, which is insane. You guys figured something out in that podcast space. I think it's with all your shorts and YouTube. Yeah, between the shorts and the clips channel, we get now 150,000 views Real. per month or per 28-day <laughs> cycle. And that's not yeah. including... Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, which sometimes those get some views too. Yeah. And it, it just goes to show, cool. right? Like, and Spotify taking... is pretty crazy too. Oh, is it? Yeah. Spotify's got, nice. I don't even know, 30,000 a month now. It just goes to show, like, me and Maya always thought about throwing our shorts and stuff on YouTube, but, and a lot of podcasters don't do it. Right. And it, and it goes to show, like, what you do in real estate, you're also doing in social media. There's an opportunity, you throw it out there and, Boom. Hundreds of thousands of uh, impressions uh, a month. Yeah. People are looking at it wrong. They're looking at ad revenue. And there's so many opportunities that come from this exposure that are not ad revenue related. But I also think, you know, we've decided to put some dough into the podcast, which most people are reluctant to do. Yeah. Okay? But yeah, you can, no, you can sure. generate so many opportunities. It's insane. I mean, TK sells houses. People call me with land. People call me with money. It's pretty, pretty unbelievable. Met met, met like our planner that we're using from Twitter or YouTube somehow. You have to (laughs) just use it properly. It is a networking and advertising beast and you literally do nothing. So if you could find the right person to chop the stuff up and just put it out, it's all just supposed to lead to something else, right? Like the shorts, (laughs) they just lead to the main channel. Yeah, we had a rise event. People were tuning in on our podcast and we had so many people that we didn't even like super experienced investors that we didn't even know that we could reach through our podcast. So like just simple things by putting yourself out there lead, leads to good things. All, yeah. Everything that you said, though, will be down at the show notes below. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, like definitely do share it with a friend. 
Give us a five-star review, leave it a comment. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.